Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the Bible, the words of eternal life. And we confess together without this library of 66 books that you inspired and breathed forth and preserved for us that we would be lost, we'd be in darkness, we would not understand who you are, who we are, we would not know the truth. So Lord, help us understand the Sabbath day, this command that you've given to us, and to enjoy the Sabbath, to see it as a great blessing. It's never a burden in any way. And we pray that you would ignite our hearts with a a passion and a love for the Sabbath day, to look forward to it, to look forward to celebrating it, keeping it as the day of our holy convocation, the day that our Lord Jesus rose from the grave, and the day that our salvation was fully accomplished. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. Wanted to do one more sermon on the Sabbath before we move on to the next commandment, the fifth commandment. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is our scripture reading and our sermon text that we'll be walking through. This is God's word. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I've given you a a three-point outline there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along that way. Uh, The first point is simply an overview of God's law being aimed at human flourishing. That's the overarching purpose of God's law. And then works of necessity and works of mercy. The first point there. We saw last week that the law of God was given by our gracious God um, to bring about the happiness, the the life, and and the good and flourishing of man. The Pharisaic additions to the Sabbath commandment had turned what was supposed to be a delightful and a wonderful day of rest from normal weekly work and recreation, turned it into a terrible burden. A day of fear and trepidation on the part of the people of Israel. People were literally afraid to move around on that day. They were afraid to do anything on the Sabbath. The commandment simply says, as we saw last Sunday, in it you shall do no work. Now, can you blame the Pharisees for taking every conceivable precaution to avoid doing work? I mean, the Hebrew of the commandment is very straightforward. It says, no doing any work. 
In its biblical and Old Testament context, however, its meaning is really rather simple, and they had strained it beyond all credibility. But the meaning is our normal work and our normal vocation by which we provide for ourselves and our families, by which we serve our fellow man and glorify God by, by, and by meet together on the Sabbath day to worship. That's what the commandment is all about there. It's not saying you can't do anything at all. Legalists and Pharisees made this simple commandment into a terrifying burden that nobody could carry. This glorious one day in seven of rest from normal work and recreation, it became a day literally of walking on eggshells for the people of Israel, especially when the Pharisees were nearby or were watching them. It was almost as if they were so caught on the letter of the law that they had really forgotten the purpose of the law altogether. And the purpose was always the good and the happy life of man. God gave us the commandments so that our lives would not be a mess, so that our lives would go well, so that we would prosper and be well-rested and be happy and productive. We looked at how one reason Christian people today are, are worn out. One, one of the reasons we're irritable is we're just tired. People don't rest anymore today. Even many Christians, the, the, the Sabbath day is really not a day of rest. It's often a day of getting extra stuff done or, or running more errands or, or things like that. But God hardwired us to need one whole day to rest. Our bodies need it. Our minds need it. Our souls need it. Men need to soak in the gospel and to soak in the word of God for a day and to give their bodies and their minds a rest from their normal work. Men need a day set aside of their normal work and recreation just to adore their creator with their fellow redeemed believers in a local church. Men need a day to set aside the horrors and the darkness of the world and to think on the reality and the wonder of the fact that we're, we're going someplace that's going to be so glorious it can't be described. The new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells where there will be no, no news reports of horrifying scenes of war and bloodshed and death and corruption or anything like that. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The, the Sabbath day is a day for us to look forward to that, to long for that, and to really have a foretaste of it. God gave us a day to make it our delight to spend the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship and to engage in a holy resting all that day. Now, there are two exceptions to this great worship task of Sundays, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy, our confession says. Necessity and mercy, and that's what we see in this passage here, necessity and mercy. Our larger catechism, question 117, has a wonderful phrase. It says, quote, And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business so that we may be more free and fit for the duties of that day. It's okay. It's a good thing on Saturday to prepare for Sunday so you don't have to do as much. Okay, And that's not saying if you do have to put a dish in the dishwasher or clean something that you've violated the Sabbath. That's, again, missing the point. But we ought to prepare so that we really can rest as much as possible on the Sabbath day. We looked last time at how absurd these Pharisaic additions were and that they not only made human flourishing almost impossible, they also created all kinds of loopholes for people to break the Sabbath. They, they created loopholes to, to get around what it actually commands. 
I mean, think about that. The Pharisees were both legalistic in their add-ons and licentious in their loopholes. I mean, to be licentious and legalistic, that takes a lot of skill to do that. And as was mentioned last week, please always train yourself to be content with what God actually does say. No more and no less. There seems to be this inborn sinful propensity to want to add or subtract from what the passages actually say. Don't look for excuses to abuse the Sabbath and to treat it like any other day. Don't turn everything into a work of necessity. Don't turn everything into a work of mercy. Be mature, be wise. After last Sunday morning's sermon, one of my little girls asked to do something and I said no. And she says, but isn't it a work of necessity to make your daughter happy? (laughs) Hence uh, this morning's sermon. (laughs) So don't look for ways to add on to God's words so that you won't even get remotely close. That was what the Pharisees always did. It was, well, we're going to set up more restrictions so we never get close to disobeying any of God's commandments. The Jews did that, for example, with taking the, uh, the name of God in vain. They added to that commandment. You shall not even write it or speak it. And they thought, hey, if we never write it or speak it, we can never take it in vain. Not realizing that the commandment requires a lot more than just how you treat the name in terms of how you say it or write it. God's name is taken in vain anytime we sin as God's representatives in this world. We're, we're taking his name in vain by not representing him well. His name is taken in vain if we believe false doctrine about anything. The commandment is not limited to outward forms and behavior, and that was always the Pharisaic problem. Don't add unbiblical restrictions to God's commandments. Be content with what it says and implies, and with what it does not say and does not imply. The law was given to fallen sinners to show them their sin, and to show the redeemed people of God how to live an abundant and happy life of gratitude and thankfulness to God for their salvation. Think about the prologue of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the context for the Ten Commandments. I'm the God that redeemed you. And so here's how I want you to live your life in thankfulness to me, so that you prosper and are happy, and so you glorify my name to all the people around you that don't know me and see you. The law was given to the redeemed people, the redeemed from Egyptian slavery and bondage to show them how to be thankful for that redemption from their slavery. One great theologian, Robert Raymond, said this about the the redemption context of the Ten Commandments. He wrote this quote, The Exodus redemption resulted in the creation of a new community liberated from slavery in order to serve its gracious new Redeemer and Lord. And far from Israel rashly accepting the law, at Sinai and falling from grace when the nation promised its obedience to God's law, the very preface of the Ten Commandments places these ten obligations within the context of and represents them as the anticipated outcome of the redemption which they had just experienced. So it was to be through Israel's obedience to God's commandments that the nation was to evidence before the surrounding nations that it was God's treasured possession and his kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Precisely the same way, listen, that the church today evidences before the watching world its relationship to God. You know, our witness to the world would be so much more powerful 
if we were more obedient to these commandments and didn't see them as a burden, but as a great privilege, as look at how gracious our God is. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 4? God told the people of Israel, this will be your wisdom in the sight of the nations. When they see the way that you all live, that you take a whole day off of work, that you worship me, that you have righteous judgments and statutes, they will say, what nation is there whose God is so wise as them? That's what our obedience should evidence to the world. But remember what God told the the world through Paul in Romans chapter 2 about Israel. The name of God is what? Blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. These commandments are given to us just like they were given to Israel in the context of our redemption. This is how we show God our thankfulness. This is how we evidence to the world that there is a God who is real, who sanctifies people, makes them different. When we rest entirely upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that law becomes the means by which we evidence to the world around us that we are not like them, that we're different from them, that we really do belong to to the Lord and his name is glorified and adorned by that obedience. Like many today, the Israelites often misunderstood the true intent of the law. People can become so used to erroneous teaching that hearing the truth can almost sound like a foreign language to them. Much of our Lord's great sermon on the mount was aimed at correcting those misunderstandings of the Ten Commandments. The law always required far more than merely external conformity. The Pharisees and many Jews thought as long as they hadn't physically murdered or engaged in the physical act of adultery that they had kept those laws. What's amazing is the pagans who have never been to church in this area think the same thing. What do people say all the time? I've never killed anybody. What does the commandment really require? That we don't hate others in our hearts without cause. They're all wrong. Both commandments extend to every thought, attraction, imagination, desire, motive, and motion of our inner life and thought. In their efforts to avoid any and all work on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees and many Jews have made the Sabbath so complicated that it was a burden too heavy for anyone to understand or carry. Jesus was accused of being a Sabbath breaker. Because of these add-ons, when he and his disciples did things which outwardly looked like they were very obvious violations of the Sabbath, the Pharisees came down like a ton of bricks and said, you're, you're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. As it turns out, Jesus' opponents also did not understand the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment, what it required, and they certainly did not understand its purpose. Now, the text of scripture we're going to look at here, I'd like to, to move into point number two here. I've divided under, under two headings, works of necessity and works of mercy, because they're both uh, addressed here. Let's look, go ahead and look at verse one. Now, it happened that as he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. Okay, just stop there. There's several things that are important to notice about this scene. Jesus and his disciples are traveling, and it's the Sabbath day. That's the first thing. They are hungry and they're passing through some grain fields while they're traveling. To deal with this hunger, they pick some of the heads of grain and they're rubbing them together uh, in their hands to get the chaff off of them. And then they might have added a little water or some oil to make them into little cakes to eat. Now in Judaism, Sabbath meals were prepared ahead of time to avoid the problem of working on the Sabbath to prepare meals Many today engage in similar preparation to minimize the amount of work they need to do on the Sabbath so they can devote more of their time and energies to the main duties of the day, namely the public and private exercises of worship and a holy resting. But we need to understand something very important here. Nothing Jesus and his disciples are doing here is unlawful on the Sabbath. Nothing. Look at verse 2. 
Some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the tone of that question is rather condescending. That's like asking your child with their hand in the cookie jar, why is your hand in the cookie jar? Isn't it a bit strange that the Pharisees, somehow they were always lurking nearby Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees are questioning and challenging his Sabbath practices. And Jesus matter-of-factly answers them with scripture as if it was clear and obvious that he wasn't violating the Sabbath. And before we look at his answer to this question, just remember that the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the most conservative of the four Jewish sects that existed at the time of Christ. There were the Essenes, they were kind of like monks that lived out in the, in the desert. There were the Zealots, those were militaristic Jews that were always ready to rebel against Rome. The Sadducees were modernists and liberals. And then the Pharisees held to a high view of the Old Testament scripture, and they were at least in some sense looking for the Messiah. They, they claimed to love the law of God. They studied the Bible. The Pharisees believed in the whole Old Testament, and they prided themselves on strict adherence to what they perceived to be every detail of the law. In their reading of the Bible, however, they missed several very important facets of God's law, which they ought to have noticed. The first thing was that the law required outward and inward conformity, and we already covered that. The law is to be over not just our physical actions, but our thoughts, imaginations, attractions, motives, and the entirety of our inner life. Many will conform outwardly to the law, but as Jesus would later say in Matthew 23, 28, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's the first grave error the Pharisees made, that the law only requires outward conformity. It also requires perfection of thought, imagination, as we've said already. The second grave error they made was not understanding, and this is the key here, the overarching purpose of the law, which is a flourishing, healthy, happy, productive life. That's the overarching purpose of the law. And let us now look at Jesus' answer. And please bear in mind when Jesus, who was morally perfect according to these commandments all, at all times and in all situations, when he answers this question, he answers this question in such a way that he indicates it ought to have been obvious to the Pharisees that he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. That's what I love about the way he does this. Look at verses three and four. And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone and gave it to his companions. Isn't it amazing the way that Jesus answered his opponents? He does not appeal to an infallible teaching office in the church. He doesn't appeal to the great rabbis of the past. Again and again and again in the Gospels, he simply says to his opponents, just listen to some of these. Mark 12, 10, have you not read this in scripture? Mark 12, 26, have you not read in the book of Moses? Matthew 12, 5, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, etc.? Matthew 19, 4, have you not read? Matthew 21, 16, have you not read? What does he believe in? The clarity and sufficiency of scripture. That's the final argument. He doesn't appeal to this rabbi or that rabbi, this teacher or that teacher. It's, haven't you read this? You should have known this. And these were guys that prided themselves on knowing everything in the law. And he's asking them, haven't you, did you skip this when you were reading scripture? Yes, they'd read all those passages. 
Jesus' constant point with his enemies is that they fail to understand the purpose of God's law and they refuse to allow scripture to be sufficient in and of itself. The Pharisees were very guilty of adding more restrictions to God's law than God himself does. And I want to encourage you, always have this in your mentality, never dare to be more righteous than God in the way you think about stuff. They also added ways to get around obeying it. As I said, they were legalistic and they were licentious. In this episode where David was hungry and those who were with him were hungry and they entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21, 1-7. Now listen, the Old Testament law is very clear about this in Leviticus 24 about who can eat that bread. Leviticus 24 says, And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. And then verse 9, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. When David was on the run from jealous King Saul, who's trying to kill him there in 1 Samuel 21, he and his companions were hungry. And they ate that bread that only Aaron was supposed to eat. And the text does not question the lawfulness of them doing this. Their doing this posed a big problem for the Pharisees because David's eating that bread looks like a flagrant violation of Leviticus 24, doesn't it? And obviously, Jesus is not advocating, you can just disregard what the law says in any situation, is he? He's not saying that. Another part of Jesus' use of this Old Testament episode is that it's not clear if David did that on the Sabbath day, but that's neither here nor there. But just remember this. Always bear in mind the law's primary purpose is human flourishing and the good of humanity. The Old Testament law was waived and transcended by human need in this particular case. And Jesus is making a direct parallel to himself and his own disciples picking heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands and eating them on the Sabbath day. A direct parallel to that and what David did in eating the showbread, which Leviticus 24 said only Aaron and the priest could do. The law should never restrict or hurt the well-being of people when it comes to their basic needs. Now, I have no doubt this may seem a bit foreign to some people. In fact, I've met young Reformed guys who probably would have agreed with the Pharisees here had not Jesus corrected them by citing the incident where David did what looked like a direct violation of Leviticus 24 to care for his basic personal needs, namely eating. The Sabbath commandment is a prohibition of our normal work and recreation for an entire day. Although the Old Testament did not allow anyone but priests to eat the showbread, David and those with him did not violate the law or break the law when they ate it for one simple, very obvious, and profound reason. You ready for it? They were hungry. That's why it wasn't a violation of anything. They were hungry. They needed the food. Any interpretation of God's law that would harm human beings, Jesus is saying here, there's no violation of the law here. Now immediately we have have to ask the question, okay, we believe works of necessity are permissible on the Sabbath day. But what what does necessity really mean? Necessary for us to stay alive? Would David or any of his men have died of starvation if he hadn't eaten that bread? Certainly not. Well, was it really a Really a work of necessity then? I want to encourage everyone here, always err on the side of agreeing with the incarnate Son of God. 
when it comes to reading the Old Testament. Okay? I, I want to assure you with everything in me, it was not a violation of anything that he did that. Jesus isn't arguing for a licentious view of the Sabbath. He's only showing the Pharisees what ought to have been obvious to them. The Sabbath commandment is not ever to be a hindrance to human life and flourishing. No Old Testament laws should ever be understood that way. Commentators point out uh, ceremonial appointments in the law can be dispensed of in cases of necessity like this. God's providence had brought David into a situation in which he was hungry and the bread was available, which only the priests were allowed to eat. But David's basic necessity of eating to satiate his hunger and keep his strength circumvented the law, which said only the priests could eat that bread. And Jesus cites this narrative to the Pharisees as if what this passage in 1 Samuel 21 taught should have been obvious to them. The Pharisees should have seen the disciples of Jesus picking heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands and eating them, and they should have known without question that the Sabbath was in no way being violated by that. Human life and flourishing is what's behind the Sabbath commandment. Any interpretation of it that would hinder that is by definition wrong. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. A commentator, Leon Morris, said, Jesus never taught that man is Lord over a divine institution. Again, in the Gospels, Son of Man invariably means Jesus. He is surely referring to his messianic function. It may be significant that this follows a reference to David's action. It is the Son of David who is Lord If David could override the law without blame, how much more could the much greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, do so? End quote. It must be said here that there will always be some whose basic approach to everything in the law when they study it is this. And I want to encourage you not to to embrace this, please. Whoever's position is the most restrictive is the best and the safest, and therefore it must be correct. Don't adopt that mentality. Always go back to the text of scripture and look carefully at it. That's what you want your position to be. Don't look at the different positions on various subjects in the law and think whoever is the, is the most restrictive, that's the one that's got to be right because that's the safest. That's the way the Pharisees thought and it got them in a lot of trouble. Whoever holds the strictest view has got to be right. We ought, in opposition to that, hold whoever is most faithful to Scripture is right. There are some, like the Pharisees, who want restrictions. Give us restrictions. The more restrictions, the better. And anyone who doesn't agree with all of my restrictions is a Sabbath break. Jesus allows works of necessity, meaning that which is conducive to human life and flourishing, like eating when you're hungry. You know, not necessarily about to die of starvation, but if you're hungry and you've got to do work to eat, that's not a violation of the Sabbath. Nevertheless, please remember the Sabbath commandment teaches us that the whole day belongs to the Lord. That's a possessive phrase. The Lord's day. We get six-sevenths of our life. God says, I get one whole day in seven. It's my day. The day belonging to the Lord. The whole day is to be spent in his service and for his worship by his covenant community. Don't look at Jesus' use of 1 Samuel 21 and think, see, we can do whatever we want on the Sabbath. And we can set aside direct commands of God in Scripture. All we got to do is say, well, to me, it's a work of necessity. That's not wisdom. That's immature no, there's only specific cases of personal necessity that you're allowed to do that. You are most certainly wrong if you're thinking of putting everything and everything, anything into the category of necessity. 
In fact, last Sunday, as I said, you know, one of my kids was playing on the stuff I was saying. Isn't it a work of necessity to make me happy? It's like every request I get is, isn't it not a work of necessity? No. Okay? Only necessity for human flourishing and human well-being and human life. <clears throat> the key to understanding uh, this uh, is Jesus' phrase from verse three, verse 3 there. You see in verse 3, what David did when he was hungry. What David did when he was hungry. Why was it okay for Jesus and his disciples to pick grain, rub them in their hands, prepare them, and then eat them on the Sabbath? The same reason that it was not a violation of the law for David and his men to eat the showbread, which Leviticus 24 said only the priests are allowed to eat. Human need was at stake. Human flourishing was at stake. They were hungry. David and his men were hungry. Why did Jesus and his disciples do this on the Sabbath? They were hungry. It's as simple as that. Isn't there a beautiful simplicity to that? Remember what we learned last week about what a wonderful blessing uh, the Sabbath is supposed to be, but it, it became a nightmare through Pharisaic Judaism. It was a curse to God's people, not a blessing. It was looked at with dread. It was a tangled web of restrictions and loopholes that you couldn't possibly hope to understand. And Jesus would later say in his pronouncing of woes upon Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. It was all those add-ons, all these extra laws, those were the heavy burdens they were laying on people. That's what the rabbinic add-ons had resulted in. The law of God, however, the true intent of the law, was never intended to be a burden. As I think John's going to get to it tonight. 1 John 5.3 says his commandments are not burdensome. Any view of God's commandments or laws that makes them into a burden or, or a pain or, or something that's against human flourishing, that's not the right view of them. They're not burdensome to God's people. We, we love to obey them. They only become burdensome when they're corrupted by man's additions or subtractions. The Sabbath commandment's intent is clear. In it, you shall do no work. But this was never at any point intended to be a hindrance to normal tasks that we must do to be comfortable and to flourish in the world. Those who add restrictions to the commandment are, in point of fact, Sabbath breakers. The second part of the narrative, uh, is, we're not going to spend as much time on it because it's a bit more obvious. Works of mercy and love are also good on the Sabbath day. Those are always good to do. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Okay, first thing right out of the gate. The Sabbath day is the day that the gathered people of God and their local fellowship come together to hear the word of God, to pray, to hear the preaching of the word, and to sing God's praises together. You know who always went to synagogue on the Sabbath day? was Jesus. Jesus was always there. This is one of the best parts of our holy resting, to hear from God's word, the, those wonderful promises of eternal life. Where else would a believer want to be on the Lord's day? Every week we commemorate the first day because that was the day that the Lord abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ the Lord was risen on a Sunday. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Jesus attended synagogue worship on the Sabbath day. And this day, there was a man whose right hand was withered. And some commentators think he was a plant. That the Pharisees made sure he was there because they wanted to try to get Jesus in trouble. Look at verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. This is yet another testimony to their hardness of hearts, isn't it? 
that Jesus could do the most astounding healings ever heard of, that was never doubted or challenged by the Pharisees. How could they? There were thousands, tens of thousands of eyewitnesses of the miracles he did. They only wanted to get him for breaking their anti-biblical Sabbath regulations. A healing on the Sabbath day. Their application of the Sabbath was not life-affirming. And it did not make any allowance for the good and flourishing of man. Their Sabbath days must have been spent nitpicking everyone and every, everything for violations, anything they could find. They followed Jesus around looking for things to accuse him of. You ever noticed that? Every time Jesus did anything they could accuse him of, there's always a Pharisee nearby watching. I was wondering why they're constant moving around near Jesus. Why doesn't that count as a Sabbath violation? Could it be that their greed for attention and their religious pride that they wore as a necklace blinded them to how they broke their own rules? That's why Jesus called them hypocrites. You guys don't even follow the regulations you make for yourself. Always remember how stinging that Greek word, hypocrites, hypocrite, really is. That word, if you look it up in the Greek lexicons, it means an actor. An actor. Someone who pretends. One great truth that always ought to keep Christians humble is that no matter how esteemed we may be in the eyes of our fellow man, God can still see every single thing that goes on in our hearts. As we're about to see here, the Pharisees did not have love in their hearts for people in need. They had a real cold-hearted indifference to the suffering of others. And that's one of the marks that they didn't know God. They, they didn't have love in their hearts for anybody. Showing mercy to people most in need would never be outlawed by any of God's commandments. Dear congregation, hear me. Showing compassion, sympathy, weeping with those who weep, Rejoicing with those who rejoice and showing the self-giving and self-sacrificial love that God commands us to do, those are never prohibited by any of God's commandments in any circumstances. Showing compassion and grace and mercy to someone in need is never a violation of anything. The Sabbath day is a day set apart for the worship of God. Normal work and recreation are set aside that day for the public and private exercises of, of worship but love and compassion are set aside for nothing. Notice verse 8. You see here? You see Christ's deity here. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. What an amazing scene, isn't it? It's amazing to see Jesus wants to do this in full view of everyone at the synagogue, and especially the Pharisees. And the question that Jesus asks them is devastating and brilliant. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? Now that's a no-win question for the Pharisees, isn't it? What person in their right mind would say to do harm and to destroy life? Jesus did not miss an opportunity ever to instruct crowds, even if what he said just made them even more angry with him. And that's one thing we've got to learn from narratives like this. Jesus had courage. He was not afraid of, of men at all. He did not have an ounce of fear in him. Jesus was able to accomplish many things by this question and by this healing in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Pharisaic Judaism had a high regard for scripture, but was overrun with traditions which negated the simple life-affirming teachings of scripture. One of the most corrupted doctrines our Lord addressed was their Sabbath, their additions to the Sabbath. And they actually saw healing a man on the Sabbath as a violation 
of the Sabbath's prohibition against work. Isn't that remarkable? Healing someone on the Sabbath is a violation of the Sabbath commandment in Pharisaic Judaism because that's a form of work. Jesus, once again, teaching them and us now, they were not using the lens of life affirmation, compassion, and love for one another to understand the Sabbath day. Now look at verse 10. After looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. The same narrative is recorded in Mark. Mark gives us a little more detail. Listen to Mark's account, Mark 3, 5. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. The Pharisees were stubborn in their error, in their conceit, in their wickedness. They would rather this poor man with a withered hand stay disabled because it was the Sabbath day. Another point we see here is this. The direct observation of miracles had no effect on their hardness of heart. I remember an atheist saying at a debate during audience questions, he said to the Christian debater, look, if God exists and he really wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he part a few oceans? Why doesn't he rain down fire and brimstone on a few wicked cities and do a few resurrections of dead people in front of us? And long ago after hearing that, I thought, yeah, God, why don't you do things like that? That would help. And then realizing, no, it wouldn't. What's the next verse say? Look at verse 11. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Directly observing the miraculous didn't change their hearts. God could come down from heaven and do miracles all day long. Jesus could personally appear to every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. God could part the Atlantic and Pacific oceans, rain down fire on a dozen cities, and throw the moon into the sun for all to see, and not a single human heart would bow their knee in repentance and faith before Jesus Christ as their Savior. Mark's account of what happened after that is remarkable as well. Mark 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So Jesus pulls this guy up in front of the whole church. He says to the guy in front of the synagogue crowd, you come up here, come up here, the guy with the withered hand. And he looks at the, at the Pharisees and he's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he says, stretch out your hand. And the guy is healed miraculously. I mean, picture that scene. And the next verse says, immediately they started plotting with the Herodians. How are we going to kill him? Remarkable. You know, there but for the grace of God, that's every one of us. We'd all be just as hard-hearted as them. I really thought, you know, the next verse should have said before I was more biblical in my thinking. And when they saw, when the Pharisees saw the withered hand as whole as the other, they fell to their knees. At last we've seen the evidence. Truly, you're the Son of God. We want to be your disciples. But it takes much more than a miracle outside of us. It takes a miracle in our heart of hearts. It takes the, the taking out of that heart of stone and the giving of a heart of flesh. It takes the changing of our affections from being slaves of sin to wanting to follow Christ and loving God. God's got to change us to the very center of who we are to do that. Unbelief is a moral problem, not an intellectual one. It's a moral issue. Men love darkness rather than light, Jesus said. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. So God's the only one that can change that 
loyalty to the one master. It ought to have been obvious to the Pharisees, to all the people, that showing compassion, showing sympathy, showing love, showing mercy to someone on the Sabbath day was not a violation of it. You know, I mean, Jesus even said that to the Pharisees in other places. If, if, you're, if your donkey falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, don't you go get it out? I mean, how many of you here, if a child cuts their finger or skins their knee on the Sabbath, say, oh, I can't put a bandaid on there, it's the Sabbath day. No, of course we're going to show mercy and compassion. That ought to be instinctive in us. And yet these guys were so hard-hearted. They were against him giving restoration to a man whose hand was crippled. His hand was withered. These Pharisees didn't understand the life-affirming nature of God's holy law. That's why it wasn't a violation for Jesus to to rub some grain together with his disciples on the Sabbath day and, and prepare that food and eat it. They were hungry. It was a work of necessity. Same with David when he was on the run. It wasn't a violation of Leviticus 24. David and his men were hungry. They needed that bread. It was a necessity for them. These Pharisees had perverted, they'd ruined the Sabbath by the the add-ons and all the misunderstandings of it. Works of necessity, eating when you're hungry, and works of mercy, medical help, physical care, or rescuing someone. Those are to be done on the Sabbath day. And they've always been done on the Sabbath day by God's people. The law of God is never an excuse to go hungry or to allow a child to get severe diaper rash or anything like that. Any understanding of God's law that would prohibit love, compassion, or mercy at any time and in any situation is always wrong. To think that our merciful creator would ever prohibit basic acts of love and mercy and kindness to our fellow man, that's nigh unto blasphemy. That shows that there's a real misunderstanding of his character anyway. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. It is his day as the Son of Man. It's observed in his honor, in honor of his great work, his resurrection from the dead. Since his resurrection, we now have the Lord's Day Sabbath. And let us be sure that our understanding of it is identical to the one to whom the day in its entirety belongs, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Sabbath day. And we thank you that you've not taken a day from us, but it's the Lord's Day and you've brought us into rest. You brought us to participate in your Sabbath rest where you come and rest with us. Just as you have ceased from your great work, the cross work for our redemption, uh, we have ceased from trying to save ourselves and are simply resting on your finished work. We pray that we would keep this Sabbath day holy and that we would occupy our minds and hearts with the public and private exercises of worship and also to engage in a holy resting, to give our, our bodies a break and our minds a break and to rest this day. Bring us back here this evening to hear the word of God again, to sing your praises. And Lord, we are so thankful to you, so thankful for the gospel of, our free, of your free grace that our Lord Jesus died and has fully atoned for the ways that we break the Sabbath. May we endeavor to show you gratitude and thankfulness even more by being more serious-minded about keeping it holy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.